Church, oh, what a blessing it is to uh, be able to worship. Um, I love the fact that um, that Ezra has kind of rode in to to town, Jerusalem, if you will, and uh, he he kind of hit the road running. And uh, for those of you guys who might not know, we're in the book of Ezra this evening. Um, and after being gone, or, you know, he was born in captivity in, in, in that place up in Babylon area, and making this 900 trip, 900 mile trip in four months, coming down into Jerusalem area, um, again, man, he, he, he just started doing what God had called him to do, and now he has settled down or settled in somewhat. Everything, everything basically is in place and everything is accounted for. He, he, he arrived, he got to rest for about three days, it told us last week. All the numbers matched with all the possessions that they had brought from Babylon down to to uh, Jerusalem area, and, and, and again, man, just kind of trying to fathom how much, how much possessions they had that it would, you know, run into the millions of gold and silver and, and all these things that, that they brought in and everything matched. And then they had a great time of worship. And even after that time of worship, which I just, you know, was, was amazed at, that for the first time Ezra... And the people that had come with him were now worshiping in the temple because the temple was done. And then they were given support by all the city officials. Now, I told you last week before I started into chapter 8 how impressed I was with this young man, Ezra. The fact being that he is 22 years old. He is a scribe. He is a skilled scribe. He, he is well-versed in the law of God. And even at this young age, this young man, he comes on the scene. And after this 57-year gap from the time of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, that, that now this young man comes on the scene. And so, to me, when I started, when I met him, when he was introduced to us in chapter 7, I was impressed. After chapter 8, I was even more impressed. Just kind of seeing this guy's heart and the humility that this man brought to the table. And how, again, just being this young and being this wise, I just felt like, man, he is just wise beyond his years. And I like that because even as young Christians, you know, uh, it doesn't matter how young you are. If you are studied, if you are learned in the Word of God, there's wisdom beyond measure. And God had given it to this young man. And apparently, I'm not the only one that's impressed with this young man because as we, we will see as we get into this chapter, even in the first verse of chapter 9, it seems like people are impressed with him. And so let's cover the first four verses first in chapter 9 of Ezra. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people 
of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They have, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard, and I sat down astonished. Then, then everyone who trembled at the word of the Lord of Israel assembled to me because of the transgressions that those, of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Man. Now, it didn't take uh, Ezra a lot of time and those who had come with him, it didn't take them a long time to set these things in order. When it says here, and when these things were done, he arrived in Jerusalem on August 4th, 458 B.C. And in chapter 10, it tells us that when they all gathered together after this incident that we're covering here, it was December 19th of that same month. And so in four months, it took him four months to make the journey from Babylon down to Jerusalem. And he gets to Jerusalem and he starts setting everything in order as we saw last week. And now it has taken him four months after that from August to December and these things are now done. These things are now complete. And it's almost like this young man, he comes on the scene. And God has called him to, to take charge of everything that's going on. Now, mind you, again, he's 22 years old. There's people there that have been there since Zerubbabel 57 years earlier that were maybe youngsters at that time. They have been there for all this time. They are still involved but they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So these guys, they're probably in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and this young man comes on the scene. And it doesn't take time, a long time for him to set things in order. He doesn't waste any time because he knows what he is called to do. He's not dilly-dallying. He's not forming committees. He's not figuring out what should we do. He knew what he was called to do. The temple was done. God had called Zerubbabel and, and Jeshua to come and set it all up, and they did it. Longer than they should have, but they did it. It was done. And, and God had called this young man to come and teach the people how to worship. That's what he was supposed to do. He knew that's what he was called to do. So when he set everything in order, when all these things were now done, and even gaining the support of those people that were already there, it says that the leaders came to him. Ezra had not only gained the support 
of these Jewish leaders that had already been there, but he gained their respect. And these guys must have been impressed with this young man. Coming in like a whirlwind. You see, after 57 years, they had kind of settled in their religion once again. Because when Zerubbabel and Jeshua came on the scene, they set up the altar, they finished the temple, there was this excitement. There was this revival that had happened within their lives, within their hearts, because they had not been back in the land for 70 years. And so now some time has passed and people have settled once again. And I don't know how your life has been as a Christian, but it's easy to happen, for that to happen in our lives. That when we get excited about coming to the Lord, something new, something fresh, something out of the ordinary, things are moving, things are happening, and then as you keep on going, all of a sudden things just kind of like, oh, it's kind of kind of exciting, but not always, not like before, and it's just kind of ho-hum, and people just kind of settle in, and people are like, well, I used to read my Bible, but now I don't read it as much as I should, and, and there's all these excuses that start happening, and pretty soon it just becomes kind of just stagnant. Almost dead. And I shared a couple of weeks ago that, that again, uh, Ezra is coming on the scene and I really didn't know what had happened. Well, I kind of knew what had happened. I knew that there was a staleness and that's why God had called Ezra to come and revive this generation once again. And it took this young man. And these leaders who had been there were so impressed with this young 22-year-old man. In a few short months, he had proven himself to be a man of God. A man who really didn't waver from anything because he knew what he was called to do. That nothing was going to sidetrack him. You know, we, we, we read early on in Ezra about these adversaries, and I could, I could guarantee you there was adversaries in, in Ezra's life. But that didn't matter because he knew what he was called to do. And so he gained their respect and they trusted him. And there's something that's going on at this time frame that these leaders for some reason haven't dealt with, but they know that this young man could probably set things straight. And so they trusted him with this hard issue and these leaders, they make their way to him. Now some could say that these leaders were those who had come with him. And that's a possibility that in that short time that they have been there themselves, they have observed what has been happening to the nation of Israel, to the people. But more than likely, these leaders are those who had already been there. They've been experiencing this deadness. And quite, quite possibly, even within themselves, there's this excitement, but man, oh man, when, when, when the leaders, their leaders, are just as dead as everything else, it's like, what do they expect? They've been observing this. I don't think that all of this happened, what we just read in these short verses, started when Ezra got there. This was already in the works. There was a, already this complacency that had come upon the nation of Israel. Again, they had the temple. They were supposed to be doing the, 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 the festivals. They were supposed to be doing all the sacrifices. And I don't know if they were 
hit and miss or what, it, what was happening, but things weren't right anymore. It's quite possible that these leaders were so impressed with the, the authority, the, the amount of authority that this man showed up with. Not just the authority that he had from King, King uh, um, Artaxerxes, the Persian king, but I think they were impressed with the authority that this man carried himself with in the Lord. The confidence, not the arrogance, but the confidence that this young man had in the Lord. That he would be able to deal with the situations. And so these, these Jewish leaders, they come to him saying, the people of Israel. And I think they're, they're saying, as a whole, the people of Israel. But then they get specific. And the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. And he goes on to mention all these, these people. But he says, it, it is in respect to the abominations of these people. You see, the people that were there that had now taken over the land after they had been taken out of the land, those people that had come in, they brought their gods with them. They, brought their, they, they built their temples, their altars, their high places, all the things. And so these people were doing what they do, what they normally do. They worship their gods. And these, these, these leaders are telling them they have not separated themselves. These leaders have seen everything that had been going on and maybe, possibly, they had tried to confront the issue with these priests and these Levites. But given the fact that they themselves were just in the same mix, you're going, what do you do with that? What do you do when the church leadership is sinning just like the rest of the people? Where do you go? Who do you go to? And I'm sure that they were crying out to God, God help us. And maybe Ezra was an answer to prayer when he shows up and they're going, this is the man that's going to set everything straight here. It's quite possible. But the priests and the Levites have not consecrated themselves. They have not separated themselves. They have not sanctified themselves. Oh, at one time they probably were, but now they're, they're doing what everybody else is doing. And I think it's just a sad, sad commentary, especially in leadership within a religion like this, but within even the Christian religion, the Christian faith. That even today, in this day and age, so many church leaders are doing exactly what the world is doing. They're going right to the edge, if not crossing it, and saying, well, we, we have all this liberty, and we do. We have liberty to do whatever we want. The Bible tells us that all things are lawful for us, but not all things are good. And that goes to Christians as well. But when the pastor or the assistant pastors or the leadership themselves are, are, are engaged in these things that are this close to the world, <laughs> that you can't even tell them apart. And again, the stories that I have heard, that it just sickens me, it just saddens me that, that some of these pastors are thinking it's okay to party and to drink and then go out and, and preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Can you imagine if you showed up on a Sunday morning and all of a sudden it's like, oh, Pastor Zeke's not teaching. Oh, no, he is hungover today. 
He, he, he kind of tied one on again last night. It's like, dang, that's about the second, third week in a row that he has done that. How would you feel about that? Or would you be going, man, we're, we go to such a cool church that our pastor, he ties them on. He, he, he pounds them back, man, just like everybody else does, man. Every once in a while he's there. But, man, it's, it's cool that we have a, a pastor that does that. I don't know about you, man, but I wouldn't come to this church. I, I was saddened a couple of years ago, one, one of the churches that I, that I know, and, and, and they had gotten into that place of having the liberty to drink until their assistant pastor wrecked his motorcycle. And he happened to have his son on the, on the bike with him. And so now he not only gets the DUI, but he gets endangerment of, of, or child endangerment as well. A neat pastor, man. I, I, I kind of knew that that church was kind of going, hey, we have liberties. I heard a message on drinking, and I just thought, geez, man, they, they've gotten really close to where it's like, well, it's up to you, you know, whatever. It's like, and it is. I can't tell people not to. I could tell them what the Word of God says. If you're in my leadership, I would tell you, no, absolutely not. But I can't tell people do or not to do. But this, this pastor decides, well, and I could guarantee you he's coming from other, another pastor's house. And it just saddens me because when the leadership is doing the same thing, almost like here, that there's people going, who do we go to if our pastors are being just like the world? You know, back then, it's not like you just left and went to the other church down the street that doesn't do that. It was one church. <laughs> it was, it, they had one temple. <laughs> it's not like they had another temple to go to. And so these guys are going, these guys have not consecrated themselves. They have not separated themselves. They look exactly like everybody else. Just like the, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Parasites and all the termites and all the other ones, you know. All these guys, you know. They look just like them. They're doing exactly the same thing. But you see, there's a big difference between separation and isolation. We are to be in the world, but we do not have to be of the world. We don't have to do what the world does, yet we have to live in this world. And I think many of us who got saved years ago that, 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 that weren't raised in the church, we know what we were saved from. And so when we, when we were radically saved, like my life was, was radically saved, why in the world do I want to be that close? And so I have separated myself from the things that I know are not good for me. <laughs> But I can't isolate myself from the world. And there's a big difference. Because we can be in the midst of our jobs, of even our families, our family gatherings, our relatives. We could be, we could, we, we could be among them, but we don't have to do as they do. And I know many of my friends, many people, is like, I can't even hang out with my family because I know what my proclivities are and how weak I am. It's like, stay away. If you cannot separate yourself from those things. And so these guys had not separated themselves and they were doing the same abominations as these people. I'm going to turn over to Exodus um, chapter 34 and then I'm going to go to Leviticus chapter 18. And I want to read to you why God had told these people that they couldn't be like everybody else. 
God has a plan and, and, and He has reasons why He tells these people you need to separate yourself from the, that, that abomination. And it says in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 11 to 16, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the uh, Hivites and the Jebusites. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going lest you be a snare in their midst, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices, sacrifice to their God, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot, with their God, gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. And so he's warning them, hey, I don't want you to get even close to them. And then if you go over to Leviticus chapter 18, beginning in verse 24, he says, do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these, the nations are defiled which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore, I invite the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the, the men of the land have done, who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who commits them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore, you shall keep my ordinances so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourself by them for I am the Lord your God. And so God is commanding these people do not get close to it. And yet these people that in our text, these priests, there's the people, the priests, the Levites that have not separated themselves with respect to these abominations. And because they had not separated themselves, they began to do what the other people were doing. And it was an abomination to the Lord. And they were sinning. The word trespass here that is used at the end of verse 2 is not like the normal sin that, man, you're just trying to do good. You're trying to do good, but you keep on messing up. You keep on missing the mark. That is sin. 
the trespasses that they knew where the line was. And they crossed it anyways on purpose. They knew what they were doing. They knew what the law said. They knew why God had told them, hey, I don't want you to even get close to the abominations. The land has already been defiled. Don't be part of that defilement. I have separated this land for you. I've made it holy. I've I've consecrated it. Do not defile it. And then he says something really important in verse 2. That they have taken some of their daughters and, as wives and made them uh, for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, there's only a few verses, but I couldn't stop. So from 1 to 8, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you have possess and cast out many nations before you the Hittites and all the all the ites seven nations greater and mightier than you verse 2 and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them you shall make no covenant with them nor show, nor show mercy to them nor shall you make marriage with them you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their, their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall utterly destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor chose you because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were the least of all the people. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now again, this wasn't a racial thing that he didn't want this intermarriage stuff going on. He was trying to protect the children of Israel because he had a plan for the children of Israel. He had chose them not because they were mighty, because they were nothing. He chose them to show himself strong, not just to that people, but to the world. And he wanted to use them to be an example to the people around them. And not only that, these people, these Jewish people, God had a plan because he said that he had redeemed them from the house of bondage, from the land of Egypt. And so he not only bought them and brought them out of that, but he would redeem them time and time again. But he had something even bigger. You see, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, would come from this people. And they could not be mixed because it was supposed to be pure because he would have a pure blood. From, from, from this generation to generation, this lineage that he would be able to buy you and I back today. So it was important that God says, Israel, again, man, let, the, let those people do what they want to do. You don't do it. You can't be mixed up with them. 
And that's why when he said, when I give you the land, get rid of all of them. Push them out, kill them all, whatever you got to do, but do not be like them. And that was the hardest thing for them because they didn't do that. And they come back and, and, and hundreds of years later, today, as we're reading this, they are still being bombarded by all these ites. <laughs> these same people that they were supposed to push out, drive away, kill, destroy, all of those things because they didn't. They're still battling these things. And these people are still turning away from God. And even to this day, Messiah would not be born for another 400 years. And they had to keep the line pure still. Because Jesus would be coming. And without Jesus being pure, then there would be no redemption for anyone. And so this, this holy seed could not be contaminated. So these people, they willfully sinned. And in verse 3, he says, And when I heard this thing, I tore my garments and my robe, and I plucked some of the hair, some of my hair, some of the hair of my head and beard, and I sat down astonished. Ezra had been given so much authority as we saw back in chapter 7. And he was so serious about this authority that the king had given him that anyone who offended or, 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 or broke these statues that he would set up because the king said, hey, you set it up the way you want to set it up. He had given him so much authority that if he wanted to, he could banish his own people banish other people from the community. He could confiscate their wealth. He could even execute them if he had to. He had that much authority. But before Ezra could do any of those things, he sought the Lord. Because when he heard this, it just tore him up. He was astonished at what had happened. And that word astonished means to be stunned, to grow numb, to be devastated, stupefied, to be appalled and shocked and horrified. The sin that he had, he had heard about and understood that this was happening was so serious, it says, that he, he tore his clothes. And that was a sign of lamenting, of hurting, of grieving. It was almost like grieving over somebody who was dead. It was so serious. And in extreme conditions, man, they, they would shave their heads off to, to show the sign of mourning. And he didn't even have time to call somebody to go get him a, a Gillette or a, or a Bic or whatever, man. It's like he just started pulling his hair out and his beard out. And I'm thinking, man, oh man, please don't make me do that, guys. Don't say to it because I ain't got much left. But he was so devastated by the sin of the people. And again, can you imagine this young man going, what has God done for us? Why have you gone back to what God saved us from? He, he has saved us from captivity, brought us back to our homeland so that we can have the temple. You have the temple right in front of you. You have let it go dormant and, and you are gone back to what we used to do. Can you imagine this young man just going, what is wrong with you? 
Be, being a Christian for as long as I've been a Christian, I've seen many, many people. And it's sad. Come and go. They get excited about being saved. God has forgiven them for all their sins. And they've, they, they've walked away from their old lifestyle. And so many of them, for some reason, man, decide, oh, let me go see how close I can get. And they end up crossing that line. And they didn't mean to. They didn't want to. And they come back and they, they're going, oh, that was so hard. And then they go and cross that line again. And it's like, guys, it's going to get easier for you. And it does. To where many people are right back where they were at. And you're going, well, were they ever saved or not? And I have no clue. And that's a hard call. But I know what I've been saved from. I know how radical my conversion was. And it wasn't like I was this crazy maniac or whatever. I was just a lost sinner headed for hell. And I knew that once I got saved. I didn't know that before. But there is nothing back there for me. Nothing. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't, I don't have struggles. It's not that, I, that, that sometimes you long for those things. Again, man, we all go through those things. But when I really look at what God has saved me from, why in the world would I want, to, want that world? Why would I want to go back and do what I used to do? And this young man is looking at these priests. He's looking at these Levites. And he's going, why in the world have you decided to do that? So much so that it just tore him up inside. So much so that he tears his garments, which was, again, was a, was a, 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 it wasn't something you did very often. So much so that he pulls his hair out. He's in a place where, where he is just so distraught. And instead of lecturing them, Instead of preaching to them, instead of calling them out, it says that he, 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 he went into mourning, so, so to speak. And everyone who trembled at the word of the Lord, they assembled with me, he said. They, they came to me and we gathered together because of the transgressions of all these people who had come out of captivity, basically. Back to our homeland. And he sat in astonishment, devastated until the evening sacrifice. Verse 5. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting. And having torn my garments and my robe, I fell on my knees. And I spread out my hands to the Lord God, my God. And I said... Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to humiliation, as it is this day. 
And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God. To give us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the king of the kings of Persia and revived us to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Jerusalem and Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded us, are commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you have entered to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the people of the land with their abominations, which they have filled it from one end to the other with their impurities. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less <clears throat> than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. Should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people, committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us <clears throat> so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. We here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. It's so interesting because as I've been reading this for the last couple of days, it's just been breaking my heart. And uh, <clears throat> again, mainly because I know who I am. And I know what God has saved us from. I know what he has saved me from. And again, I am not exempt from falling back into who I used to be. Nobody is exempt. And to have a guy like this young man being so serious about what God has called him to, to understand that he has been called to show the people how to worship. And in four months, he sees the underbelly of this ugly beast that is before him. And it just breaks him up. It just tears him up. Because he had such a heart 
for the Lord. He had such a heart for the temple. Can you imagine the excitement that he had when he got there and he's seen it for the first time? And going, there it is. That's what my forefathers told me about. And as he gets going and people are coming alongside, he's going, yes, the revival has started now. I could see God working. I could see God just moving. Man, God is going to be glorified here. And then four months later, these guys going, hey, bro, we got to tell you what's really going on now. And the devastation that this man has. And again, he doesn't go after them right away. He, does, he doesn't go after them and start saying, how dare you guys. He just humbles himself. He tears his own clothes. He just, he, he looks inward and, and, and in this prayer, he doesn't say, look at what they've done. Look at what they're doing. Look at what all these people, he starts saying, we, I, he, he puts himself in that same mix with these people because he knows that he is this far away from being just like them. And his heart is broken. And so as soon as he hears about it and he tears his clothes and he he sits down in astonishment. He begins to fast. He has nothing to eat until the end of the evening prayer at the end. And it's not a prayer, it's not a fasting like we shared about a couple weeks ago about, you know, I'm fasting for this reason. He's fasting because he is so grieved for his people. And it's tearing him up. He is so grieved going, how could I eat? in pleasure, when everything is falling down around us. Can you imagine this young man being so excited and then just seeing what these people are doing and going, Lord, why am I here? I thought you sent me to come and revive this whole thing. <laughs> and God's probably saying, because they're dead. <laughs> so you are going to revive it. It says that he fell on his knees and he spread out his hands, almost like in so just surrender, just on his knees, going, I have nothing to offer you, Lord, and I surrender, man, because I can't do this. He says, I'm too ashamed and humiliated to, to lift up my face to you, God. And it just reminds me of, of that Pharisee and that sinner that go to the temple, if you remember, where, where the Pharisee prays this amazing prayer and, and, and just say, man, I, I do all these things. I'm glad I'm not like this guy. And the other guy is just beating his chest, saying, I'm not even worthy. And that's where this man is at. He says, I can't, Lord. I can't even look up because my sins, they've come in like the, the, the sins of my people and of, of all of us. They've come in like a flood, man. They're just way over my head. I'm way over my head in this, Lord. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. And he is just broken. He says, since the days of our fathers, to this day we have been very guilty and for our iniquities. And he mentions these people in, in verse 7, the kings and the uh, you know, the, the kings that have come in from other lands and, and they, they've killed us, they've captured us, they've plundered us, they've humiliated us even to this day. And then verse 8, it says, and now for a little while, grace has been shown on us. He realized that God 
had for that time span in his life showed him grace, what he didn't deserve. And he says this in these, in these verses 8 and 9. He says, he, he, he has shown us grace and he left us a remnant. He left us an, a remnant that we could escape and come back. And he's given us a peg in his holy place. And it's speaking about like a tent peg that would hold together and it, and this peg it spoke of, a, of an authority that is placed there in the house of God a fixed kind of character that would be there he goes you've given us a plague a, a peg in this holy place and you've opened our eyes you've enlightened our eyes and you've given us a measure of revival to get this thing going again, Lord. Again, understanding, he said, we were slaves. And yet you never forsook us in our slavery. In our bondage, you never let us go, Lord. God was as real to them up in Babylon area as he was in Israel. God had showed up and he never forsook them. This young man was raised in Babylon area and he knew all the things of God. In the darkest place in the world, God still showed up because he hadn't forsaken his people. And he extended mercy to us, he said. He showed us mercy in the sight of the kings of Persia and he revived us and repaired to to be able to repair the house of the Lord and rebuild its, its ruins. And so there was a remnant, there was a peg, there was enlightenment, there was revival, there was mercy, there was, there was repair, and there was rebuilding that was, that, that was happening. And can you imagine as he's praying this, as he's crying out to God, and he's looking around going, how do I do this? How do I do this, Lord? And he humbles himself before the Lord when he says, Lord, we have forsaken it. We have forsaken your commandments. I, I wouldn't blame you, Lord, if you just take us back into captivity because that's what we deserve. You haven't judged us according to our sins, he says a little later. You haven't given us what we deserve exactly, Lord. Guys, if, if I thought that he, he was that I was really impressed with this young man in chapter 7 and even more impressed in chapter 8. I have fallen in love with this young man as I've studied this man going, I want to be like Ezra. I want to have a heart like Ezra. I want to hate sin like Ezra hates sin. I want, I want to be able to, to just fall on my face like Ezra. I want to have a heart that just says, Lord, I'm so sorry for what we've done. I want to repent for my sins. I want to repent for your sins. <laughs> I, I, I want to be just right in that place where Ezra was just kneeling down with his arms open going, here I am, Lord. That we would have that desire, guys. Because I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't know that. But if, if you're even having this much of a thought to see how close you can get away with sin, guys, it will destroy you. It will destroy you. These people had decided, well, we can get away with these things. And God was watching the whole time. And this young man comes on the scene and God uses a young man like this to expose all of this to them.
God puts people in our lives. And sometimes they don't even have to say a word, but you just get convicted because they're there. <laughs> and that was Ezra. Ezra showed, on the, showed up on the scene. And these people, these leaders were so impressed with this guy going, he can do it. And I could imagine that when they gathered around him and he tore his clothes and they seen this guy and all of a sudden he's pulling out his hair and they're going, dang, this guy's serious. And they all sat there with him as he worshiped, as he prayed, as he just humbled himself, not just for himself, but for his whole people. And it just reminds me of Moses. There was a time when God says, you know what, Moses, I'm tired of the people. How about if I just destroy them all? I'll destroy them all and I'll start it anew with you. And with all the pain that Moses had gone through, through I would have said, let's do it. But it just shows this man's heart that he says, no, Lord, what are the people going to say? What are the people of Israel gonna, or Egypt going to say that you couldn't do it? No way, God. Man, here, and, and I'm sure Ezra's in that place that God in a heartbeat would have offered him, hey, let's start fresh with you, Ezra. And I could guarantee you he would have had the same heart as Moses. No, Lord. We'll go through the punishment because you have promised and you have been faithful and you will be faithful because you, you reserve this little remnant, Lord. For some reason, Lord God, even though we've forsaken your commandments, even though we've done all these abominations and we've filled the land, just like those people, you have not punished us the way we truly deserve. He, he, he didn't blame God for being angry. If you do the same thing with us, Lord, I understand. I think he was willing to go through the same kind of ordeal that they had gone through before. And in verse 15, as we close up here. Oh, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. You are righteous. For we are left, for, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt. <laughs> Though no one can stand before you because of this. Let's just be quiet before the Lord. Um, again, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're battling right now. I don't know what sin you're in. I don't know what anything from anything right now. But let's just humble ourselves before the Lord. Uh, the worship team can come up and let's just sit here for just a little bit.
Father in heaven, we just humble ourselves before you. Lord, you know us all too well. You know our rising up and our, and our sitting downs, Lord. You know when we come in and when we go out, Lord. Lord, you know our every thought, Lord. God, even before we think it, Lord. You know the battles that we have even right now, Lord. You know the sins that we have committed just because we're sinners, Lord. You know the transgressions that we have committed, the trespasses that we have committed on purpose, Lord. You know all those things, Lord. And right now, Lord, we want to humble ourselves before you to say we're sorry, Lord. For the times, Lord God, that we have just sinned against you in such a way, Lord, that we have brought shame to your name. even if you just start with us that are in this room right now, Lord God, that we would repent and humble ourselves before you. That, Lord, as we cry out to you, you will heal us. Lord, there's so many people in our fellowship who are battling, who are, who are just vacillating back and forth, Lord, and I pray, God, that you would show them that there's nothing out there for them. Show us, Lord, that, that there is nothing good in us. There's nothing good in this world that we are not to follow after these things, Lord God, but to follow hard after you, Lord. Father, thank you for this uh, amazing little book, Lord. I pray, God, that you would just continue to remind us, Lord, of the heart of Ezra that he had for you and for your people, Lord, that we would desire that same thing, Lord, God, to have a heart for you and for your people. And Lord, when you, when you have solidified that in us, Lord, give us a heart for those who don't know you, Lord. Help us in reaching out to them. They need you. They need you bad, just like we do, Lord. And so, Jesus, we humble ourselves this evening. We honor you, Lord, for you are good. We thank you so much, Lord, in Jesus' name.